I'm sure you've heard the statement, love is blind, like if something or someone or something, how do you know you love it? Well, you think about it, you dream about it, you sacrifice to get it, and you pay that sacrifice willingly, gladly. Like if there's a cost, if you love it, you will pay all that you have so you can have it, and that's the thing. You want it, you want to possess it, you want to at least, at the very least, know it and be known by it. Yes, we are told if you love something, you set it free. But in reality, this isn't how it works for us. When we love something or someone, if we can't have it in the way that we want it, then you don't want anyone else to have it either. And this is how love is blind. It overlooks things. It overlooks your crazy. It overlooks their crazy. It overlooks faults and fissures and failures. It overlooks what they do to you. I mean, if you love Coke Zero, like me, you overlook the aspartame. You overlook shot adrenal glands. If you love Coke, you overlook sugar and calories. If you love attention, you will go to extraordinary means to get it. If you love control, you will exert it in manipulative ways, and then you will overlook all of that. If you love work, you will live to do it and die a thousand deaths when it enslaves you. If you love a person, you will sacrifice for them and give all that you have for them, even when they are at their worst. What I want you to understand is that love willingly puts itself into places of submission and yielding to the object of that love. You place yourselves, in other words, under it. Love puts oneself under the object of love. It submits to it. It obeys it. You obey your desire for it. You obey the the siren song for it. Your lover calls and you answer. It matters not when or where. And this is what Paul is saying God has done. Namely, he has loved us and has given us the gift of his grace. And that gift is efficacious, the indicative. God's gift of grace is received and what proceeds out of it, the imperative, obedience to him, love for the giver of the gifts. Now, in the back half of chapter 6, verse 15, Paul shifts to another question that sounds a lot like the first in this chapter. Are we to sin because we are under grace and not the law? The first question, are we to continue in sin so grace will abound? And here Paul offers the same response as he did earlier in the chapter. No, he double negatives it by no means. He's emphatic. May it never be. Now, why does he go back and ask a similar question again? Well, I think the simple answer is the ease at which the gift of grace is lost amongst the weeds of work. Paul's aim, remember, in Romans is to proclaim the gospel, and his gospel has been the subject of shame and inquiry around the world. And the charge that Paul gets time and time again is this thing called antinomianism or anti-law. Paul is anti-the law. So Paul is careful to go back again and again to this point. The gift of grace is unconditioned. It comes to us as enemies in our failures when we're not doing good. That's why it's a gift. But it's not unconditional, not in this sense. We do nothing to receive it, but when we do receive it, it is efficacious to change us. It does something to us. For Paul, the gift of grace, and remember that grace is a gift. This is uniquely Pauline. The gift of grace is a gift prior to, given in superabundance to those who don't deserve it, and it's efficacious and it's producing a fruit. Here, Paul again emphasizes the gift of grace frees us. What does it free us from? It frees us from slavery to sin. And it creates something new in us 
people who are now able to willingly and gladly submit to Jesus. It tells us here, Paul says, that when we are under grace, it means the freedom to do not what we want, but the freedom to love as we ought. So we're going to focus on this one image today. And the image is being a slave. You might have to do this, Titus, because my little clicker is not working. This is the image Paul gives, being a slave. Paul uses this. Paul says, if you are think being under grace means you are okay to go on sinning, you don't understand what sin is, nor do you understand what grace is. Throughout the New Testament, we see that sin is an enslaving power. Jesus says in John 8, 34, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Sin is not just the things that you do necessarily. Not, it's not the, the bad things that we do. It's a force. It's a power. And it lords and reigns itself over us. And so Paul starts his answer to should you sin because you aren't under the law in that he says if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, slaves you are. And this is the second slide. We are all slaves to something. What Paul is saying is everyone is a slave to something. Now, maybe we should start with this question, especially for our modern ears. And this is the next slide, Titus. Why does Paul use this image? Why slavery? Why does Paul choose to use this? Because when we hear it, it kind of rings in our ears. Like by using it, is he kind of like advocating for it? And maybe you think, ugh, this is why the Bible bugs me, stuff like this. So why? And this comes from uh, Edwards and his commentary. Here's what we need to understand, is that the institution of slavery in the ancient world is without parallel in the contemporary West. A modern employee or even a servant is indebted to his employer for a certain number of hours each week. He works and the employer pays him. He is indebted. Any time outside the employment contract, of course, is at the employee's disposal. That's our world. The employee can, in other words, serve a number of masters. Ancient slavery was something entirely different. A modern employee owned, owes an employer a certain amount of productivity, but an ancient slave owed a master time, labor, and life. Slaves were held under moral obligation to obey their masters, and it indicates they were considered human beings, not simply chattel, but they were inferior nonetheless. Now, this is unlike American slavery in the antebellum South, where race or ethnic origin played very little role, if any, in ancient slavery. Ancient slaves came from every background imaginable and performed a varied role in societies. Most slaves, of course, performed labors of drudgery, but some were bureaucrats, artisans, teachers, even physicians. But like their American counterparts, ancient slaves were considered the property of their masters, bonded to them. And that's the word Paul uses here, bond servant, doulos, a Greek word. One who is subservient to and entirely at the disposal of his master. A bond servant or slave was acquired through a variety of means, including birth, war, auctions. Some slave traders acquired babies exposed in temples, left to die, or public dumps. And in times of famine, adults not uncommonly sold themselves or their children into slavery to avoid their starving or their own starving. The exact percentage of slaves in the Greek and Roman world varied, but roughly a quarter of the workforce belonged to the slave classes. Regardless of their function, slaves possessed 
few civil rights, virtually no legal rights. If a master freed a slave, it was considered a gift, not a duty. Slaves could be sold at the master's whim, and punishment of slaves, including torture or capital punishment, was permissible as long as it was according to the law and the customs. Now, that means slaves didn't have rights, and they were under the master and in bondage to, to them. So hear this first. We don't like the word, but it is a historic practice and a practice that is still at work in the world today. In fact, Christianity is the sole impetus for slavery being considered wrong. It was Christianity that asserted into the world human rights and humans having dignity. With that, Christianity became the worldview that made freedom for slaves a culturally accepted practice. So Paul uses this very common social practice to illustrate life both for a follower of Christ and everyone else. This was not offensive in Paul's day. It was contextualization. The Bible always arrives into a context. This mode of communication is very much God-like. God places himself into human forms like language, histories, cultures, and the aim is to communicate his heart, his love, his plan. Now let me add to this, verses like these and others have been used by Christians and others to justify the practice of slavery. But remember, Christianity and the church is a mixed bag. In our day and age, where there is so little nuance and lots of polarization, we must remember how humans are more complex than that. Christians brought freedom from slavery, and yet some still enslaved. Now, Paul is using slavery as illustration. So back to the idea. We are all slaves to something. Next slide, Tadis. You've got to serve somebody, and whoever that is controls you or whatever. Whatever you love, you are serving. Now listen to the quote here by Rebecca Pippert. Whatever controls us is our Lord, our master. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. Or listen to this guy, a guy named David Foster Wallace, who spoke to a bunch of college graduates and gave a this is water speech where he uses the word worship. Foster Wallace, who was not a Christian, says there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And he then says what you worship better be transcendent because if it isn't, it will eat you not alive. Now listen to what he says here on the screen. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship, next slide, you get just by gradually slipping into them day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that's what you're doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. 
This is what Paul is saying, next slide, when he says, we are all slaves to something. We all worship someone. Whoever you yield to over and over and over again, this is your master. The modern poet and prophet Bob Dylan sings it. He says, you're going to serve somebody. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be a heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And so Paul is saying this. You will either be a slave to sin or a slave to Jesus. We are only free in this way, free to have a master. To be free from one power is simply to be drafted into the service of another power. And to serve one excludes service to another. And the issue of obedience was not the problem of sin or law. The command to obey was given by God with the breath of life. It's inherent to be a creature. We are all slaves to something. Next slide. So we give. Here Paul gives some clues in the text How do we know? Well, we give our bodies to it. How do you know what you're a slave to? Well, you give your bodies to it. What did this look like? Verse 19, we present our members. We yield our members to impurity, to lawlessness. So there's this yielding. Yielding is stopping, giving way, submitting to something, placing yourselves under it. Why we do this? Why do we do this? Why do we present our members, our bodies, to things that demand slavish obedience and then they don't stop demanding it? Our bodies continue to give themselves over and over again to this object of love or lust, and that makes us just want it more and more and more. We are giving ourselves over to a master that can't satisfy our lust. Even when we have it, we want more of it, and when we don't have it, we are willing to commit all sorts of impurities to have it. So we give ourselves to it over and over again. We present our members like offering our bodies in worship to it. This is sin. Sin is the things we do. It's rebellious, rebellion and lawlessness and purity. But it's also a power that holds sway over us and makes demands on us and claims on our life. Second thing is we think we are free when we aren't. In verses 20 and 21, Paul is saying, now that you've been changed, you've been transported from being in sin to in Christ, you're free from the control of right. When you were in sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. My watch is talking to me. What does this mean? What does it mean to be free from the control of righteousness? It means our sin, that we ima- in our sin, we imagine sin is true freedom. It's kind of like Stockholm Syndrome. Have you heard that phrase before? Where someone enslaved begins to love their captor or thinks that their captor is, in fact, for them and not against them. With sin, we think our captor has our best interest in mind. We grow to love the one who enslaved us. And when we hear them speak, we think their voice is a voice of liberation. That's what slavery to sin looks like. We think we are free when we're not. We think our enslaver is our liberator. We love being enslaved. Now, you would never say that, but you keep going back to it and back to it again and again because you love it. This is how the Bible thinks about sin. It's a power that enslaves. It's a master over us. Now, Paul continues... What else? How else do you know you are enslaved to sin? We give our bodies to it. We think we are free when we're not, and we are full of shame. 
He says now that we are free of it, we feel unashamed. But when we are enslaved to sin, we feel nothing but shame. How do you know? Do you hide? Like, do you hide things about your story and your life from others? From those that are most intimate with you? Do you hide? Do you hide from your coworkers and friends? Now, there's a lot of ways to hide. You can just not say anything, or you can even embellish. You can embellish your conquest. You can talk about how sweet that party was or how hard you worked. But all of it is an attempt to cover up and hide our shame. We don't tell or we change the facts to tell it better or different. And, and, and another part of this is the ache, the pain, this desire for all these things to be uncovered and confessed. But where and to whom and how? We have this ache in built in us when we're, when we're ashamed. We want it to be atoned, to be dealt with, for, for someone to come along and cover it, to, to make our sin go away, to, to let us be free of it. And this is why we make promises to ourselves about how we'll do better next time. That's shame language. It's the fruit of our slavery to sin. We think our enslaver is our liberator, and our world is full of shame. So how it kind of works even out in our world, in our culture, is that the things that we are ashamed of, we, we become proud of in an attempt to voice it out loud. It's, a, it's an attempt at confession, but it's not confessing to anybody that can actually do anything about it. It's just by announcing that you're this way or that way, you think you're going to be free of it. Or if not free of it, free to embrace it all the more. That's how sin works. It's full of shame, even in our confession. If we have nobody that can confess and deal with what we're ashamed of, we'll embrace it all the more. The last thing about it, how do you know you're enslaved to sin? How do you know what you're serving, what you're worshiping? You get paid in death. It's ending his death. Look at verse 23. The wages or fruit of sin, the power of sin, is death. Wages here is payment made to soldiers. Sin, in other words, promises to pay wages. It promises us it will meet our needs. It will pay us. It will pay us if we care for it, if we love it, if we give our allegiance to it. Sin promises, and oh, it makes promises, but in the end, it crushes you, just like Foster Wallace says. What the wage of sin really pays is death. We've made an accounting, we're being paid for our slavish obedience to sin, and the currency is death. We, are, we become death dealers. Dealt death, we deal death. Now think about that for a second. Think about our world and our culture. And then zoom in on your own heart. We are experts at death language. We are experts at putting things to death. That is our currency in our modern world. And it's also how we experience oftentimes our life. We are enslaved. We walk around like ghoulish zombies, entranced to phones, entranced to idols. It's what we do. It's how we live. This is what slavery to sin looks like. And in the end, sin will avoid all blame and point the finger at you and say, you earned this. 
There will be no escape from the power of sin. It always points the finger and says, you got what you want, brother, sister. This is what slavery to sin looks like. Now, so let's pause here for a second and do evaluation. Look at this week, month. Look at your heart. What has your heart? What has your love? What has your attention? What has your time? What has your energy? What are you giving your lifeblood to? What will you give and give and give to, even if the returns don't give back to you what you expect? You'll, you'll keep making deposits. Follow that trail. And this is what you put yourself under. This is who you yield to. This is what you submit to. This is your master. Now pause and name for it. It's called sin, a power. You might have all different sorts of names, and you might have multiple ones that you can add up on your finger that you've given yourself over to time and time again, this week, last week, and the week before. That might be true of you, but what Paul calls that as a category is sin. And what he's attempting to do for us is unmask the slavish master whose end game is always death. He's pulling back the curtain on the wizard. See your master. It's simply death. It's the reaper. There's no true delight there. There's simply shame and slavery and death. Now to all of this, Paul says to us who are in Christ, if you are in Christ, that isn't you. You're no longer a slave to sin. Why? Next slide. God has liberated you because, thanks be to God, because he has liberated you from that. Paul says, that's what you used to be. You used to be a slave to sin. Paul says in verse 17, but thanks be to God, the, the language Paul here uses is passive. It, it's sent, it's given, something we ourselves don't do, but it's done for us. This is the gift of grace that Paul's been talking about. You've been liberated from this. You've been set free. How? Well, when Jesus died on the cross, the bonds, the chains of sin's enslaving power were broken. Jesus broke the power of sin on the cross. And when Christ rose from the dead, he triumphed over sin, over the power of sin once and for all, defeating it forever, ending its power. God is the great rescuer. God sent Jesus to us. He's come to seek and save the lost, those lost in their slavery to sin. Jesus did what we could never do. He lived the life of perfect obedience to the law and overcame sin even subjecting himself to death for our sins so we could be free from sin. Jesus, in other words, has bound up sin and the devil. He has made them tap out. He's whipped them and brought us back to life from slavery leading to death to eternal life. And now we are. Look at verse 17. We who were once slaves he says, have become obedient from the heart. Like, we have been liberated from the heart. The heart, that, that loving part of us, that desiring part of us. We're desiring creatures. James K.A. Smith notes this when he says, our hearts are oriented by desire. We are what we love. We desire something and then we engage in habit-forming practices that shape our imagination and get us to the target of what we love. Paul says... God has liberated us at this gut level of desire that 
what we used to seek, all these things bound up in our slavery to sin, we now have been freed to love and seek God and his things. In other words, like I said last week, our taste buds have changed. We're made to love something else. And what does he say we love? He says we love our word. We're obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you have been committed. We've been given a standard of teaching in God's word to which we are now newly committed. The teaching handed over to us, in other words, and I want you to understand this image when you think about God's word, it is bread. It's living bread. You are, were starving in your slavery to sin, but God has changed your taste buds. You don't want what you have been in bondage to anymore. That's been broken, and now you love something better, something newer, something that give life, namely his word, and it's like whatever that sweetest meal is, whatever you think of whenever you go, like, I'm going out to dinner for this special thing, that's the thing you desire and want to taste. That's what God's word is to us now. Our hearts have been created anew by his word, and I want you to hear this. That's why we put ourselves under it. That's why I pray oftentimes at the beginning of a sermon, help us to place ourselves under your word, not over the word, dictating what the word says, but under it, receiving what you have given to us by your word and what it says. Not even next to it. We're somehow we're on equal par as interpreters of God's word, but we are under it, receiving from God his word and the interpretation of it. God gives us our, the word, and it's like bread to us. And so we now obey from the heart. Not just to obey, but because our love has been redirected, we are now captivated, not by what sin, sin captivated, we're now captivated by Christ and what he has done for us. So why can't I keep on sinning since I'm under grace and not the law? Because you've been set free from the power of sin, the slavish power, that ghoulish master. We were deceived, but now the gospel has deprogrammed us and liberated us, and we are free. Why should we obey God and do what is good and live a righteous life? What incentive is there? The Bible never answers that question by giving us more commands. The Bible doesn't ever say to Christians, do it or else. Do it because it's your duty. The Bible says you obey and love others and do what is good because that is who you are now. Do you have to obey the Ten Commandments to be saved? No, not to be made right with God. And yes, because being saved means you are now a new person and you will obey from your heart and seek to love God and others, not perfectly, but truly. And the reason is not to prove your worth or to be religious or to do your duty. The reason is because you are dead to sin, so how can you live under it any longer? The reason you are in a new kingdom and have a new master, that's why. The reason, as Paul puts it at the end of our text, is that you now have the liberty of a new slavery, slavery to God. And that's the last slide. A new freedom is found in becoming a bond slave of God. You've been set free from sin to be a slave of God. In your natural state, we are weak. We need rescue. We used to yield to sin. Now you yield, verse 19, your members, your body, to a different master. And this master, by the way, is completely unlike the other slavish one. Here's what Edward says in his commentary. Freedom obligates one to obey grace, and only in obedience to grace 
is one free. This is what Jesus offers you, true freedom. The auto racer who drafts or slipstreams a car in front of him experiences this freedom in a rough sort of way. For by pulling out into the wind pocket of the car ahead and obeying it, the second car achieves a speed and economy of fuel impossible on its own. It is neither the dispassionate aesthetic nor the supposedly unbiased critic who exemplifies grace, but the individual indebted and bound to righteousness. That's you in the car, slipstreaming behind God, your master. You have been bound to righteousness because you've been placed into Christ. And Christ took on the form of a slave for you so that he might win your freedom. So friends, hear this this morning. Liberation is the gospel, and you have been set free. Now you may think that I don't want a master, any master, but you got to serve somebody. Jesus tells a story about a householder who has rid his house of an evil spirit. He swept his house clean, put it in order, left it empty, and then, expel, then an expelled demon found seven worse demons and returned and seized the house. Unless the vacuum of sin is filled with righteousness, the heart is vulnerable to a more violent takeover. If you want to be free, your freedom is found in Jesus. And we are either under sin or under grace. So, if you're listening to me still this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, this is one of those crucial points that Jesus wants you to understand. The world presents us as in need of a a bit of moral improvement in various areas. And that improvement can occur through education or enlightenment or progress. This is not true. Fallen men and women are not simply imperfect creatures who need improvement. C.S. Lewis says, we are rebels who need to lay down arms. And the answer you are looking for in life, the hope you want, the peace and joy that keeps escaping you, none of that can be attained by getting a little better or doing a little more. By working harder or by achieving your identity better or by a larger paycheck or by a, new, a, a better, closer relationship. What you need is a complete and total reorientation about what life is. You need a new master. You need to come into a new kingdom. You need to be rescued by someone stronger than you. And the good news is, as Paul tells us, that new master and new kingdom have come, and his name is Jesus. And what does the master bring with him? He brings life. Sanctification, which is this process of us turning away from sin and our slavery to it and the death that sin deals us and progressively turning more and more, incrementally, sometimes go back, sometimes incrementally, turning more and more to Jesus who gives life. And that life, that is a life-giving act that transports you from where you used to only seek life in your master's sin. You have now been given a new master, Jesus, and you start start to seek life in him. And that trajectory ends in eternal life. Now, this is one reason, by the way, my daughter and I, sometimes me, her more, love horror movies. 
in a horror movie, there is always this constant threat of death. It is ever before those who are acting out and telling the story of the movie. And then someone comes as a rescuer. And then everything's made new. And the story ends in life. This is what Paul is saying to you today, church. The free gift of grace is that we are under, yield to, gladly submit to what leads to life and freedom. And his name is Jesus. And so this morning, place yourself under him. That's how you do it. It really, that's as simple as it is. You just say, Lord, I've been enslaved to sin and I want freedom. And so I'm going to place myself under you because you alone bring life. All of us need to do that, by the way, whether for the first time or the thousandth time. Like Rick said in his 22 years, this is the lesson that he continually comes back to. Right, Rick? Is placing yourself under grace and the Jesus who brings freedom and life. Let's pray. God, we are made for you to love you and to love others because of you, to become who we fully are in Jesus Christ. And this morning, you've painted the beautiful picture for us at the outset of baptism, that we've been brought into your church, made for relationship with you, that grace is for us. And now you call us to come and taste that grace at this table that you've spread for us. It says, this is the living water and bread that I offer. This is the atonement for all of our shame that we're seeking. You've brought it to us at this table. And say, come, taste and eat and see that I am good. So we come this morning with eyes of faith that this is the truest story and we want to live into it. So help us as we walk this aisle today to receive from you bread and wine, to be made new by the power of the Spirit. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.